This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that it is the only certainty in our life. It is revealed by you through the prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, and through the work of inspiration under the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, that which you intended to reveal to us was recorded for us by the writers of Scripture with perfect accuracy. Now, Father, as we study your word, we know that it is through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit within us, through your word that you have revealed to us, that we are enabled to understand who you are and who we are and how we are to live as members of your royal family. Father, we pray that as we study today that we might be, again, challenged by what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in Colossians chapter 3, and that God, the Holy Spirit, would make the application clear to each one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time, focused on the aspect of a counterfeit spirituality. This is a problem that the Colossian church faced. It's a problem that we face today. And from all the uh, centuries between the first and the 21st, this has been a continuous problem in the uh, church age. There are so many different counterfeits, so many different approaches that have been set forward as to uh, how to be spiritual, how to live the spiritual life. There are a number of counterfeits that are all based on different types of, uh, of religious mandates. And I'm using the term religious instead of Christian. Religion is the idea that man does something in order to gain a, the approval of God, whereas Christianity is based on the idea that God has done everything for us and all that we do is simply receive it. That everything that is done in the spiritual life of the church age believer is done in the power uh, if it has any value, it is that only that which is done in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may have been astute enough and observant enough as we've gone through our study in uh, Colossians to note that there is um, little said about the role of God the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is not that the Holy Spirit is not important, for we know that that is an emphasis that Paul has in other letters. But the issue with the Colossian believers was apparently twofold. Fundamentally, as I've been going over again and again and again, the issue was the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That was where their battle was being fought whether Jesus Christ and Christ alone was sufficient. It was not that they didn't have a problem with God the Holy Spirit, but their focal point problem was really with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And they were seeking to uh, substitute many other things for Jesus Christ. They were substituting uh, dietary regulations and eating restrictions. They were substituting the observance of various uh, feast days. They emphasized a pseudo-humility, as Paul has pointed out. They're worshiping angels. They're emphasizing visions. They have this mystical element 
that is present. And above all, they have become basically arrogant. Uh, they have re- whenever we reject the sufficiency of Christ, then we're looking somewhere else for that which really empowers and strengthens us in the Christian life. Today, we have different things that we turn to in our culture to seek uh, happiness, fulfillment, meaning in life, apart from total dependency upon Jesus Christ and what he provided for us at the cross. We look to various forms of psychotherapy. We look to various forms of motivational uh, self-help techniques. We look in terms of churches and the establishment of churches and what goes on in churches to uh, various trends in sociology. We look to various other um, things that are going on in our culture as ways to uh, find real meaning and happiness in life apart from uh, Jesus Christ. And we've done the same thing that happened in the early church, and that is we cut ourselves off from Jesus Christ, who's the head of the body of Christ. And this is exactly the challenge that has uh, Paul laid to the Colossians in verse 19, where he says that they have not held fast to the head. They have basically decapitated their, the, the local body, cut it off from the direction, from that which sustained, informed, directed, and led them, which is Jesus Christ. And what Paul addresses here is something that is uh, not what you would normally get in many sermons, many messages today as to how to have a, a meaningful life, how to have a happy life, how to have a spiritually fulfilled life. Uh, you might get three points. You might get five points. You might get uh, uh, in some churches you might be shown some sort of a film clip from some current movie that sets the uh, basic tone. But that isn't how the Apostle Paul addresses it. The Apostle Paul addresses the solution by going back to what happens at salvation, what happened at salvation in terms of what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about this in a couple of different passages, such as in Colossians 2.20. He talks about the fact that if you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, and then in verse 1 of chapter 3, if then you were raised with Christ... And so these terms are terms that we have seen are related to uh, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. This is his emphasis. That relates to something that happened positionally at salvation. Last time I talked about the fact that there are um, one of the issues here, starting in verse 5, is the command to put to death the, the, um, your members which are on the earth. Therefore, we are put to put to death our members which are on the earth. Now, last time I addressed this, and we focused first and foremost on the idea of death, that there are seven different kinds of death mentioned in the New Testament, and one of these is what I called operational death or sanctification death. Talk about spiritual death, which is our separation from God, which is a result of Adam's original sin, Physical death, which is the separation of our uh, soul from the body at the time of physical death. Uh, we talk about different kinds of death and the fundamental meaning in all of these kinds of death is the idea of separation. In operational death or sanctifying death, this is separation from the life-giving power of God the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day living covered this in detail last time. Uh, one kind of death that is mentioned in the scripture that goes along with the uh, foundation of our uh, Christian life, which is the identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, is what we call uh, positional death. Our identification with Christ in his death is part of what is identified as a baptism by God the Holy Spirit, which is covered in the first four verses of uh, Romans chapter 6, as we have studied. With that act of baptism with, by God the Holy Spirit, we are given a new identification. We get a new ID card. There's a lot of talk in the news and 
other areas today about having photo IDs for various uh, reasons, and uh, you can't even buy medication, pick up medication at the pharmacy unless you can show a photo ID. There are many other things you can't do unless you have a photo ID. Well, we're given a new photo ID at the instant that we are saved. We have a new identity. The trouble is we still live like we did before we were given that new identity, and that is the process of what what's necessary is a process of change, living according to this new identity. It's part of the new ID that we have. We have died with Christ, so we've been buried with him. We've been raised to newness of life, as Paul says in Romans 6.4, and the Greek word that he uses there for newness of life, there's two different words for new in the Greek. One means new in the sense of new in time. The other is a word that means new in the sense of new in quality. This is a word that emphasizes the qualitative aspect of the newness. And so we have a qualitatively uh, new life in Christ. We have a New nature, it is a qualitatively new nature. This is referenced in Colossians 3.10. We have this new life in Romans 6.4. We're part of a new family, uh, the royal family of God, John 1.12. We're under new leadership. Christ is the head of the body, as we've seen in Colossians 1.18 and Colossians 2.8. And we are to have a new way of thinking. As Paul emphasized in Romans 6.11, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. And so we have a new code of conduct that is to characterize this new life. And in terms of the language that is used in Colossians, where we have this language of clothing, this language of putting on and taking off, uh, we have a new dress code as believers. Unfortunately, for many of us, we often slip and we're living on the basis of the sin nature and we put on those old rags that characterized our former life before we were saved rather than living on the basis of our new life and living according to the uh, new dress code. Uh, what often happens is that people don't learn how to walk by means of the Spirit and they try to counterfeit uh, the dress code and so they put on this a superficial morality uh, superficial religion, uh, legalism, asceticism. This was what was going on in Colossae. It's something that is simply external. There's no internal transformation, which comes about only by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it must be accomplished by God the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul emphasizes in passages such as Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's not talking in that passage, as I pointed out last time, about spiritual death or eternal death. He is talking to believers at that point about operational death. Living, you may be regenerate, you may have eternal life, but if we live like, uh, <clears throat> if we live as an unbeliever, then we will not experience the abundant life that Jesus gave us. And, um, this is, and this is, accomplished only by walking by the Spirit. Romans 8.13 goes on to say, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is you basically have two options. You're either going to put to death the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh are going to create in you uh, the walking spirit, the walking dead. You are, don't lose your salvation, but you live no differently than an unbeliever. So Galatians 5.16 gives the solution that we are to walk by means of the spirit and we will not fulfill or bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Now last time and time before I put this chart up on the board, to sort of help you with the flow of Paul's thinking in this section of Colossians 2 and 3. In Colossians 2, at the beginning, 
Paul says, in him you were also spiritually circumcised. And I pointed out as we went through that passage that this is a, he uses spiritual circumcision as another metaphor for describing the baptism by God the Holy Spirit. That in uh, spiritual circumcision there is a positional removal of the power of the sin nature. And this is what he means when he uses the phrase by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. We still have a sin nature, but that tyranny that was there prior to salvation has been removed. So it's positionally removed. We have the word ekduo, which was a word used of taking or removing clothes. And then if you look at the bottom of the screen, Colossians 3, 10 through 11, which is the end of the section we're looking at this morning, Paul says, because you have put on the new man. We put off the old man, put off the sin nature, and at the same time we put on the new man. The language that comes in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, as well as Colossians 3, 10 and 11, is language that speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what happened at the instant of salvation. There is a death that occurs there that is positional, that it also has to be activated in our own lives in terms of our experience. And if you look at the four words that I have circled here, you see that there is a uh, this recurrence of a reference to death in this passage. The Colossians 2, 11 and 12 talks about our positional death. We're buried with him in baptism. Then in Colossians 2, 20... Paul says, therefore, if you died, and you did, that happened at salvation. Uh, and then Colossians 3.3 3 build on, builds on that. He says, for you died, uh, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That, again, is positional uh, death in terms of our identification with Christ. And then he says in verse 5 of, of chapter 3, therefore, put to death. You died, but now you have to put something to death. In other words, there's something positional that happened that is a death, a death to the power of the sin nature, but then there is a, an experiential reality that engages our volition on a moment-by-moment -moment basis that we are to put to death uh, our members which are on the earth. I'll explain that a little more in just a minute. And the synonyms that are used in this section for the death uh, idea. It's the idea of removing clothes. And I've circled these verbs in green that when we were spiritually circumcised, we were put off uh, the body of the sins of the flesh. That is the removal of clothes. Uh, then if you look down at verse 8, Colossians 3.8, Paul says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. Now, it's a different Greek word, but it's a synonym. And one is the idea uh, in verse 11 and 12 of that positional removal. And then in Colossians 3.8, there is the mandate that we are to do this on a day-to-day -day basis. We are to put off all of these because, verses 10 and 11 at the bottom, because you have put on the new man. That is the foundation. Uh, again, verses 10 and 11 goes back to the positional reality that because we put off the old man at salvation and put on a new identity at salvation, we are now on a moment-by-moment, day-to-day basis to live in that reality. And so he goes back to this whole doctrine, this whole idea of the baptism by the Holy Spirit as the foundation for understanding the Christian life. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 explains this, where Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, the reason I go to this passage instead of Romans 6 is because it uses this language both of baptism into Christ, our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, but then it connects that to the idea of having put on Christ. 
This is something that happened at the instant of salvation. It's not experiential. It's not something that was indicated by uh, some uh, uh, feeling, special feeling by speaking in tongues or some of the other things that have been suggested uh, down through the ages. It is a positional or legal reality. It is not an experiential reality. As many of us as were baptized into Christ, which is every single person at the inst- who believes in Jesus Christ at the instant of faith in Christ, and then as a result, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ. Now, if you'll notice, when we get there to verse, verse 11, it says that we are being renewed, verse 10, renewed according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So you see the similarity in the language between Colossians 3.11 and Galatians 3.28. That tells us that Colossians 3.11 is talking about this new identity we have in Christ where as in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, access to God and spiritual uh, spiritual uh, closeness to God was a result of or was impacted by racial distinctions because God had a special covenant with Israel in the Old Testament, and that covenant under the Mosaic Law meant that God was working exclusively through Israel uh, you could not have intimate access with God uh, unless you, and enter into the temple, the inner chambers of the uh, t- temple, unless you were Jewish or unless you were free or unless you were male. But these are not distinctives in the church age. We all have equal access to God by virtue of our position in Christ. So we have all put on Christ at the instant of salvation. Now, we've charted it this way with the circle on the left indicating that we are in the light. That's our position in Christ. And by baptism, by means of the Holy Spirit, we have put on Christ and we have this new quality of life in Christ. That is who we are. That's the identity on our identity card. But so often we fail to live up to that identity and that goes on the right side of the chart where we're dealing with our day-to-day experience. This is described in the Scripture as being filled by means of the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. Uh, In Colossians, the terminology is putting off the old man and putting on the new. It uses the same kind of language it uses for the positional reality, but it uses it in a different sense because we have... uh, put off the old man, we are to put off certain behaviors. And because we have put on the new man, we are to put on certain behaviors. However, we often fail. This is the point of the bottom of the chart. We often fail and we're no longer walking in the light as the Apostle John describes it in 1 John. And so we are out of fellowship. We are walking like we walked before we were saved, walking in darkness And the Bible describes that as being carnal, being under the power of the sin nature, walking according to the sin nature. And the only way to recover is to confess our sins. And then when we confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge them to God, then we are restored to fellowship. We are back in the light. And and that is related to the fulfilling the ongoing command to put on... uh, Christ, and we'll see this in the following verses. Now, in Romans eight twelve and thirteen, which I uh, quoted earlier, Paul says that therefore, brethren, speaking to other believers, indicated by the word brethren, uh, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, not to the sin nature. We haven't been able to save ourselves based on the anything produced by the flesh. So our debt is not to the flesh or our own ability. And then he says, for if you live according to the flesh, that is, according to the sin nature, you will die. But remember, he's talking to believers. He's talking to those who are already saved. He's not talking about uh, eternal condemnation. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about being the uh, living dead. 
you're alive in Christ, but you're walking like a spiritually dead person. You're not spiritually dead, but you're walking like a spiritually dead person. The contrast is, but if, rather than living according to the sin nature, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is a diagram of the uh, sin nature, also known as the flesh. Sometimes Paul refers to it in these physical terms because the sin nature is, uh, is given expression through our physical bodies in many different ways, overt sin, sins of the tongue, um, you know, a- anger, resentment, bitterness, all of these mental attitude sins eventually work themselves out um, in terms of physical actions expressed by our physical bodies, which are often tied to that which is the earth or that which is earthly. Uh, Paul mentions this in the verse that we're looking at in Colossians 3.5. So if we look at this black diamond representing the sin nature, the sin nature produces sins, which is the lower area, personal sins, which is the area of weakness where we easily sin, and it produces sins in the categories of sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins, and overt sins. But the sin nature also produces relative good. The Pharisees were spiritually dead, but they produced a lot of religious moral activity. So, the, But they're spiritually dead, so it can't come from anything other than their fallen nature. Uh, even uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, in speaking to his disciples at one point, said, you then being uh, evil, representing the, the core uh, reality of our fallen nature, said, you being evil know how to give good gifts. Well, it's not a qualitative good. It's not a good as righteousness that is acceptable to God, but it is relative good. So the sin nature produces Morality, it produces many good things, but it's a counterfeit good. It is not a good that has value for eternity. So the sin nature can camouflage with a lot of religion and a lot of morality, or it can uh, uncloak itself in terms of the horrors and evils of many personal sins. Now, the red pattern in the middle, the lust pattern, speaks of the key motivation that... Uh, is at the core of every one of our natures. We're motivated by lust. We're motivated by desire. We're motivated by uh, different kinds of lust. It may be sexual lust. It may be monetary lust, materialism lust. It may be lust for power, lust for approval. There are many different kinds of lust. And those lusts are going to move us in one of two directions, and we all have uh, trends in either of these directions, even though you may major in one or the other. Some of you have a major trend towards asceticism and legalism. You are basically extremely moral and upright by character. And don't confuse that with being the fruit of the Spirit. There's a lot of unbelievers who are very moral, uh, who are very good in an overt sense. Uh, in fact, I tend to find that there are many unbelievers who are trying to gain approval with God who are more moral than a lot of uh, grace-oriented uh, Christians are because grace-oriented Christians didn't take too much advantage of God's grace. Um, then there's others of you who have a trend towards licentiousness and lasciviousness, uh, antinomianism. Uh, you just don't care too much about the various mandates of God in one sense because we're all saved by grace, and so we're thankful for that, and so we have a tendency to perhaps overlook the commands of Scripture because we know that we can always just confess our sins and uh, God will forgive us. If the trend towards asceticism and legalism is carried out, it leads to a moral degeneracy. This is what happened in Israel during the first century A.D. You had the dominance of the, of the Pharisees, and they were extremely moral, but it led eventually to a lot of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of division and a lot of bickering, and, and the entire culture just sort of fragmented between the um, zealots and the Pharisees and a number of other parties until... Uh, the whole society imploded uh, uh, upon itself 
and they were unable to produce a solid front against the Roman Empire, which is why Rome was able to defeat them in the uh, war of rebellion in, between 66 and, and uh, AD 70. The trend towards licentiousness and lasciviousness, this is the idea of just taking a license with sin. I can do whatever uh, whatever I want to do because God's grace is going to cover it. This leads to an immoral uh, degeneracy. This is a picture of the sin nature, and that gives you the basic ideas that I'll uh, relate to in just a minute. In Colossians 3.5, Paul gives a basic command that we're to put to death your members. He's talking, uses his physical sense of the body because that is what gives expression to the sin nature. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Um, in James... James chapter 3 talks, he uses the term earthly-minded as a synonym for worldly-minded. So what he means here is put to death your members which are on the earth, that is earthly-oriented, oriented to uh, those who are living a time-bound existence related to only uh, what is uh, happening here and now and not with reference to eternity. And the idea, as I pointed out last time, in our study is that this is the, Paul uses a little bit different word here than he uses in Romans, Romans 8. He uses the word necrao, which is, was used at that time even by medical uh, people in the uh, ancient world to refer to flesh or to parts of the body that had been rendered useless. So the idea here is to kill off, to uh, uh, assassinate, to destroy, to necrotize, Make, render as necrotic tissue uh, that which uh, is oriented to earthly uh, pleasure, that which is a distraction to our spiritual life. But notice there's no mention in Colossians of the role of the Holy Spirit. This is seen in places like Romans 8. <coughs> Romans 8.11, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, this is not talking about eternal life at regeneration. If you follow Paul's reasoning in Romans, he talks about how to have life or justification back in Romans 3 and 4. Beginning with Romans 5, he begins to talk about a transition to uh now that we're justified, how do we live as a justified believer? And that newness of life that he talks about in Romans 6, 4 comes, he comes back to that here in this section of Romans 8, that it is through his spirit, that walk by the spirit, that we realize that fullness of life that uh, Christ promised us. So Colossians 3, 5 says we're to put to death that is, assassinate those areas of our life that give uh, <clears throat> the power to the sin nature, walking by the flesh. And then he lists a series of sins. Now, most of these sins that are listed here in Colossians 3 are sins that are related to some sort of sexual licentiousness. This must have been a major problem in uh, Colossae because he's focusing on this, and we know uh, from the ancient world that there were a number of different uh, cultic groups that were related to uh, fertility religions, and uh, there was a lot of sexual immorality associated with those religions. And so he goes through a list that is not uncommon for the Apostle Paul. The first word, which is usually translated in English, is fornication, and it's the Greek word porneia, which is where we get our word pornography, refers to any unauthorized sexual conduct, that is, sexual conduct outside of marriage. In Scripture, sex is to be restricted to the marriage between one man and one woman. Another word that Paul often uses in conjunction with porneia is the word uncleanness, Akathasia, this is a word usually referring to any form of sin that separates a person from God, but, in, um, but Paul often links it with porneia, so it takes on a certain sexual uh, overtone here uh, in terms of immoral or illicit sexual activity. 
The third uh, word that he mentions is passion, the Greek word pathos. And this has to do with unrestrained or uncontrolled, no self-discipline in terms of uh, emotion, especially in relation to sexual lust. And then the fourth term that he uses is the term evil desire, epithemia, which is a general term for lust, refers to the, uh, it's used in the scripture to refer to uh, the desires of the flesh in Romans 6.12, uh, the desires of the, uh, or excuse me, the desires of sin in Romans 6.12, the desires of the flesh in Romans 13.14, uh, Galatians 5.16 and 24, and Ephesians 2.3. That's the desires of the lust of the flesh, that is the lust of the sin nature. Uh, he uses the phrase deceitful desires, deceitful lusts in Ephesians 4.22. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.22, he speaks of youthful desires or youthful lusts. In Titus 2.12, he speaks of worldly desires or worldly lusts, Titus 2.12. And then in Titus 3.3, he speaks of being slaves to lust, slaves to lust. And so this is primarily a negative pattern, a uh, negative word that the Apostle Paul uh, uses. And then the Last word that he uses is the word uh, pleonexia, translated covetousness, and usually this is thought of as greed in terms of financial greed or monetary greed, but it was also used to refer to any kind of insatiable desire uh, from anything from a consuming ambition to insatiable avarice. And it is the idea that you're putting anything in front of God as the source of meaning for your life. When you are in hot pursuit of anything that you think it will define happiness for you, then that is covetousness, and that is putting something in front of God. You're saying that if I have this or if I have that, whether it's a person, whether it's an object, whether it's money, you're saying that if I only had that, then I would have happiness, and only God can be the source of our happiness. Now, these verses that I have up on the screen are just some examples of how Paul links these words together, especially the words of fornication and uncleanness in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 21, uh, Galatians 5, 19, the works of the flesh, the first three are adultery, fornication, and uncleanness. Ephesians 4.19, and um, where uncleanness is linked with greediness. And in, again, in Ephesians 5.3, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. So these are uh, primary manifestations or common manifestations of the sin nature and the lust patterns of the sin nature. And then Paul warns, to, that we are to put to death these things because it is because of these things, it is because of living in these sins is dominant in our life that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now, when we read this, even in English, we can give this a future sense. The wrath of God is coming soon, eventually. And in some cases, the idea of the coming wrath is a reference to God's judgment at the end of time, at the tribulation period, is known as the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God. But this word does not necessarily refer to an end-time judgment. In a number of passages, and especially in Romans, it refers to the present-time judgment of God in the life of a person, in the life of an unbeliever or in the life of a believer. The word is coming is a present uh, middle indicative in the Greek. The present tense can be translated with a future sense, but it can also be translated as a present as it is coming now in a, in a sort of a continuous sense or it can be translated as what uh, grammarians call a nomic sense. A nomic sense is something that is a general 
or universal principle, a, a timeless characteristic. And in that case, it would be translated, as I've done so in the, in the green box, the judgment of God comes. Uh, this indicates that this is a normal procedure throughout history. The judgment of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We have uh, other passages that support this present tense sense. For example, in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed. This is something that is currently going on. Romans 1, the rest of Romans 1 from Romans 1.19 to the end of the chapter talks about the various stages in which God's judgment in time comes upon um, the human race. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then in Ephesians 5, 6, we have a parallel with our passage in Colossians 3, 6, where Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Notice again, he's emphasizing these sins of the tongue. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And notice there that the translator of Ephesians, uh, unlike the translator in Colossians, took the same verb and translated it as a gnomic, the idea of the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, who are the sons of disobedience? This is identified in Ephesians 2.2, where Paul, talking about the way we were before we were saved, says, in which you... Uh, the ways in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In a uh, Hebrew idiom, sons of disobedience is simply a way of talking about people who are disobedient, disobedient people. This is talking primarily of unbelievers as those who are disobedient to the gospel, the command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the warning is don't Live your life as if you're still a son of disobedience, as if you're still uh, an unbeliever. Live differently. So what are we supposed to do? The solution that Paul gives is in Colossians 3.8. He says, but now you yourselves, emphasizing it's our personal responsibility, our personal volition to be engaged in applying the word. Now, we do this by the Holy Spirit. We don't do it if we're not walking by the Spirit, then we're going to be doing it according to the flesh, and it's just a pseudo-morality. We do it by means of the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit overrides our volition and just makes us do it right. We still have to engage our volition and say, I'm not going to do what I'm not supposed to do. So here we get another list of sins. Paul says, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these things. And he uses this interesting word in the Greek, apatithemi, which is a word that Paul, not only Paul uses, James uses it and Peter uses it in the same sense in terms of removing sin from our life as we grow and mature as believers. We are to put off or to take these things off. It's a, the imagery is of, of someone removing clothes. And so there is another list of sins that is given here. But I want to take a minute just to talk about this language of putting off and putting on. There are two different groups of words that are used here. Uh, the first group is all based on a, a Greek verb, duo or duno, which means to set something in place or to dress. And so you have various forms of this word depending on the prefix. Ek duo, ek means off, so it would mean to take your dress off or to undress. Op ek duo my has two prefixes for a little extra emphasis. Also has the idea of undressing or stripping. Op ek deuces is another noun indicating laying aside something. But in duo, notice the difference between ek duo, ek is taking off, in would be putting on. In duo means to dress or clothe, and ep and duomai is another verb for putting something on over something. A synonym is the last set of words, apatithemi and apathesis, 
from the same wor- word that means to put off or to remove clothing. So uh, this is the this is the clothing section of Colossians and how we as believers are to be clothed with the designer clothes that God the Holy Spirit has established for us. Now we see this in just these verses up here how common we have uh, this kind of terminology. Colossians 2.11, we're to put off the body of sins. Uh, Colossians 2.15, Christ at the cross disarmed or disrobed the principalities and powers. Colossians 3.9, uh, don't lie to each other because you have put off, you have removed positionally the old man with his deeds. Colossians 3.10, and you have, and because you have put on the new man. And then Colossians 3.12, We'll continue with the command to put on uh, positive characteristics, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. It's the same word that's used in a very picturesque passage, one we studied recently in Acts on Tuesday night. As Stephen was being stoned by the uh, members of the Sanhedrin, there was a young man who was standing by watching their robes as they had to take their robes off so they could uh, have a good wind-up as they were getting ready to throw their stones at, uh, at Stephen. And this is the Apostle Paul. And so we're told there the witnesses, those against Stephen, laid down their clothes, that is, they removed their garments, and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that's a literal use of that word. It gives you the imagery that Paul is talking about in these passages. Now, this is used in a number of important passages related to the spiritual life. Almost every spiritual life passage in the New Testament uses this word apotithemi. Romans 13, 12, Paul says, Let us cast off or let us remove the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Now, he's talking to believers. So he's, this isn't terminology for salvation. This is talking about we are now positionally, according to that new ID card, we are sons of light. But he says now what you have to do is remove the, the works of darkness, that is the activities related to the sin nature, and put on the armor of light. And Ephesians 4.22, he states it this way. He says that you put off concerning your former conduct. See, before you were saved, you can't live that way anymore. Put off the old man, that is the habit patterns and thought patterns and lifestyle characteristics, uh, because that grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. The path thereof is just death. You won't experience the abundant life that God has for you. You have an eternal destiny in heaven, but your life here on earth will be characterized by by death and corruption. Uh, Ephesians 4.25, he says, Therefore, and he uses a participle indicating after putting away lying, he says, Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You have to remove one thing before you put something else on. Now, there's an interesting grammatical structure that's used in three passages, Hebrews 12.1, James 1.21, and 1 Peter 2.1. This is called a participle of antecedent circumstances. Now, aren't you impressed? It's a participle of antecedent circumstances. What that means, antecedent means before. And what the participle does is it simply describes action that must take place first before you can fulfill the main command. And there are uh, certain um, uh, grammatical uh, structures here. There's a participle followed by an imperative verb. And so you have this same thing in each of these passages. And it's the idea, first of all, you need to lay aside something, and then you need to fulfill this command. Now, this begins with confession of sin. Confession of sin doesn't move us down the road spiritually. It just reorients us back to walking in the light. It's the walking that moves us forward in terms of our spiritual life. Confession of sin just simply means we're not going to continue a walk in darkness. We're not going to continue to walk or live according to the sin nature. We're going to confess our sin. We're going to get back in fellowship. We're just going to do an about face. But then we have to walk in the other direction. We don't, a lot of people just do an about face. 
Then they sin, they do an about face, and they're back out of fellowship, and then they do another about face, and they're uh, facing, they, they never walk forward in terms of spiritual growth. And that's what each of these passages talk about is, first of all, lay, Hebrews 12.1 says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. That's the removal. It starts with confession, but then it continues through an active obedience. Remove the sin that easily ensnares us so we can then run the race moving forward. James says, therefore, lay aside, that is, remove all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. I always liked this in the old King James. It was this superfluity of naughtiness. <laughs> Who knows what that means? The best translation is to lay aside all uh, <clears throat> sin and the excess which wickedness is. Okay, and it looks at sin in our life as something that is just excess baggage. And, and we need to remove it. it. It doesn't contribute anything to our new life in Christ, and we need to just strip it off and get rid of it. And then, and this is a, 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 a necessary uh, precedent to doing what? To receive with meekness the implanted word. So it's, it's at its very start, it's confession of sin so that you can receive the word, so that you can study the word, but it also implies an ongoing uh, removal. First Peter 2.1 says the same thing. Therefore, laying aside, or because you've already laid aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. And then the next verse, First uh, Peter 2.2 says, Therefore, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So it is, first of all, you have to confess your sins to lay this the sin aside before you can receive the word implanted, James 1.21, or desire the sincere milk of the word, 1 Peter 2.2. The focal point is that there has to be the reception of the word for there to be forward momentum in terms of growth. Now, there's this list of sins that uh, uh, Paul gets into here. I'm just, just for the sake of time, I'll just uh, mention a couple of verses. Anger is pretty self-explanatory, and this has to do with just a mental attitude of resentment, anger, hostility that doesn't rise to the level of the second noun, which is wrath, which is more explosive. Uh, Ephesians 4.31 links them both, let all bitterness wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, several of the uh, words that are used in Colossians, uh, here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, are, are used also in Ephesians 4.31. We're, James 1.19, we're to be slow to wrath because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So this is uh, all the word orge. Second word, thumas, has to do with a much more explosive anger. Again, this is part of the sin nature, Galatians 5.20, and we are to set this aside, uh, Ephesians 4.31. Malice is doing something with evil intent for the purpose of destroying someone, usually related to sins of the tongue, uh, and this is to be removed also, Ephesians 4.31. Uh, James 1.21, that's the uh, uh, Greek word translated uh, the overflow or the excess or, of uh, wickedness, and also in 1 Peter 2.1, laying aside all malice. Now, blasphemy is a sin of the tongue, and it's translated as evil speaking. It is essentially reviling either people or God. So when it's related to God, that's usually what we think of in terms of blasphemy, but in other passages, it's just translated as evil speaking, as in Ephesians 4.31 and as reviling in 1 Timothy 6.4. And then the last word, which is translated in some versions as uh, filthy language, which is a rather vague concept, really should be, it's only used once in the New Testament. It's, uh, it's rarely used, in, and even the uh, root is rarely used in, in Greek. But it's, it, it seems to be explanatory or appositional to blasphemy. It's language that's abusive, disrespectful, intended to harm, intended to offend someone. 
And so it is not just uh, what it appears in some English translations as uh, just uh, telling dirty jokes or something like that. It's much more than that. It's doing and saying things that are offensive, attending, intending to hurt, uh, intentionally disrespectful, um, uh, intentionally insulting of, of people, that this is to not be a part of the uh, life of a believer who is a- advancing. And then in Colossians 3, 9 through 11, we sort of tie this together. We're not to lie to one another. Why? Because we have put off the old man. That's positional. Because you're not that person anymore, we are not to lie to one another because of our new identity in Christ. Uh, Both the phrase have put off and the phrase in verse 10 of have put on are causal participles, which means they should be translated, do not lie to one another because you put off the old man and because you have put on the new man. But the new man is being renewed in knowledge. See, there, the emphasis in that we get in Colossians isn't as much on the role of the Holy Spirit as it is the sufficiency of Christ and knowledge. Uh, here we have the emphasis that we are to be renewed in knowledge, and then when we get down to Colossians uh, 3.16, the emphasis is on let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. In the parallel passage in Ephesians 5.16, the emphasis is on being filled by the Spirit. But here the emphasis is on letting the word of Christ dwell within you. The problem with the Colossians was that they were ignorant biblically. They were ignorant doctrinally. They were looking somewhere else for the solution to their problems. So we have parallels in Ephesians 4.23 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God. See, Adam was originally created in Genesis 1.26 and 27 according to the image and likeness of God. But that image of God is defaced by sin. But when we are saved, there is a new image created in us that is being renewed according to the image of Christ. That is, the character of Christ is being formed in us through God the Holy Spirit. That's seen through the fruit of the Spirit. This is done by how? By renewing our mind with the Word. Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says it this way, Therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't grow discouraged. Even though our outer man is perishing, that's the physical mortal body that's oriented to the earth. The outer man is perishing, but the inward man, the new creature we are in Christ, is being renewed. Same word as in Colossians uh, um, 3.10, is being renewed day by day. But it's only renewed day by day if we're taking in the word. And it's supposed to be day by day, not week by week or month by month or year by year in some cases, but day by day, studying the word, uh, letting God, the Holy Spirit, use the word to transform us on a day-to-day basis. So what Paul is focusing on here is, the number one, we have a new identity. Number two, we still live like we had the old identity, And we need to, under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, through a study of God's word, start living on the basis of that new identity in Christ. That means we have to understand what's all involved with that, how the dynamic works with God, the Holy Spirit, and what's that supposed to look like. And the only way we learn that is to study the word. And we learn who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. And when we live on the basis of that sufficiency in Christ, then and only then... Uh, are we going to see the kind of abundant, rich, full, happy life that the Lord Jesus Christ promised us in this, on this earth? Not just eternal life in heaven, but qualitative life here on earth with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be reminded of what Christ has given us, what has been provided for us in him, the fact that You have given us everything 
related to our spiritual life in Christ. We have his riches. Uh, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have studied today, that we are to live this new life in him because the old life has been put aside, the old life has been removed, the old life is, is dead, and we are not to live as slaves to that old life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to realize how crucial it is that we put our focus upon the word in our day-to-day life and that this needs to be the priority because apart from our walk with you, nothing else matters. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus said that if we believe on him, then he will give us eternal life. And so the only solution to life's problems is faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on him, to accept that free gift of eternal life because he died on the cross for our sins. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.